Film Situation Podcast with your host, Zeph. All right. Nina, welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. You are our first official guest. And Lena Lansky, everybody. She's worked as a first AD on many independent films, amongst other positions. And I'm so honored to have you on the podcast as our inaugural guest. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm breaking the cherry. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do in the film industry? Sure. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Raised my uh, whole life there nearly. A, na- a native New Yorker. A native New Yorker, yeah. Native I always say we're like, we're becoming like unicorns. <laughs> There's yeah. less and less of us. I was born in Manhattan, but yeah. I feel like when I meet many people in the industry, they're usually from somewhere else. Yeah. No, I I know a lot of uh, filmmakers based out of good old NYC, you know. But yeah, I mainly first AD, production manage, and also produce. But mostly what I do is first AD. Feature shorts, music videos, branded content, commercials, all that good stuff. So... Now, I know that, you know, people that aren't quite in the film industry, there's a lot of misconceptions about what a first AD does and sort of doesn't do. And, you know, I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about that. You could shed some light on like, like what is a, in your words, what does a first AD do sort of in a nutshell? Sure. The first AD is uh, first and foremost, it's a logistical managerial organization organizational sorry I moved away from the mic position and um you're just dealing with a lot of just the the grunt work of breaking a script down putting everything into specific elements and stuff like that and being on the set running it you know you're pretty much you have a production manager that runs resources and other stuff but the assistant director works in conjunction with the production manager and you're the person that is on set and you are the information vessel. And so you're trying to reel in a production on time and under budget. And so you're managing just the day to day, but in pre-production it's breaking down that script and just sort of taking this creative piece of writing and breaking it down into its logistical components you know that may make or break the production process you know you know i always say to people and i think this is a surprise for people that aren't in the industry but i always say that there's some element of producing that's that's pretty much like events planning yeah for sure i've i've done some events right before covid i ended up doing i was an events coordinator for vice media and villain was your background in first ading like extremely helpful in yeah, yeah right App, yeah uh, not only first ading but production managing right you know I, I pm'd a feature film and it was just me and another person in, in in the production office and it was like a big bitch you know and there was a lot of variables and a lot of things that we had to put together and events is the same thing because you you're resourcing you know what I mean? Like you're resourcing and sourcing. You're getting right. crew, catering, permits, insurance, all the things that you need to make an event successful or even a film. So that's like what I've said. I'm like producing is like events planning, except instead of one day of events, it might be 17 days in a row or whatever yeah. of events, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> 
silence all cell phones, please. <laughs> <laughs> silence all phones. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Especially, I mean, you know, ADing a short is vastly different than ADing a feature film because it's 18, 19, 20, 25, 30 days, whatever, you know, the, the amount of days is, and it's everyday grunt work, you know, and you're pretty much, you're the individual that's scheduled it out. You're, yeah. you know, doing all of that legwork to, you know, in the pre-production process to understand, okay, well, based off of these location availabilities, cast issues that come up, like this particular cast uh, member isn't able to come in until like week two, you know, and then you have to restructure an entire schedule based off of that, you know, and it's not always the most convenient thing sometimes. So it's like a puzzle piece. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And then kind of, it is absolutely a puzzle because- yeah then you're figuring out, all right, well, you're not just corralling people's schedules, but then kind of from, from my standpoint as a director, then it's also about kind of, well, since you're shooting stuff out of sequence, then establishing kind of just the tone of what happened in a different part of the film and then kind of reminding people to, you know, because a lot of times you're not shooting sort of in order. So just kind of a, rem a reminder. So there's that, level of continuity there's that flow that it's like okay well here's what was going on at that point and then trying to match that kind of vibe i guess that's why it's important have a make sure you have money in the budget for a script supervisor <laughs> extremely important <laughs> it's extremely important because i found yeah. that those little things <laughs> those it could be the smallest thing that um is the cog in the wheel of a production yeah. like it is as little as like oh you, you forgot to bring that shirt that pink shirt but you were wearing that in the scene it's like, well, yeah. you can't drive to Connecticut to go get that pink shirt. Like, what are we going to do? You know, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very important role on set. So, yeah, you never want to skim on, on your scripty. One of our Film Connection students, Anastasia, has a couple of questions. So we have some audience questions, folks, <laughs> even though it's a brand new <laughs> podcast. Easy on me, B. <laughs> what are the most important qualities to have as an AD on an active production? Good question. Um, I, I think in general, a good AD should be obviously first and foremost organized. You know, if you're a person who can't stay organized and you can't think of the small details, you're kind of a big picture person, which you should be as an AD too. But, you know, a lot of it is so very detailed and precise. It's important to be organized. You know, you could be soft-spoken, but stern at the same time. So I don't necessarily think that as an AD, you have to be aggressive. Like a pit bull. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say pit bulls because pit bulls are good doggies. They are, um, but when I think of an AD, <laughs> yeah. when I think of certain types of ADs, they're sort of like the pit bull. Yeah, like uh, just a very. I mean, you definitely have to have a presence on set as an as an AD. People should know that you are the assistant director. You can't just be on a set and be like, "Well, you know, what are we doing next? Like, what what's what's going on? Like, where is the AD?" You have to have a presence on set, and you have to be confident. You know, you should, uh, I believe, having a calm, cool nature is beneficial because I think that if you're more anxiety driven, you might get a little bit razzled with all the stuff that sometimes comes up, especially on sets where things are not as militaristic as they should be. You know, and you have to have room for flexibility for changes that come up on set. But, you know, if you're a person that doesn't do well with change, that might serve as a problem as an AD because you are pretty much an enforcer on set. You are the one that's telling people, this is what we have to do next. This is what we're not going to do, what we will be doing. This is how much time we have. 
And so you really got to be on top of it. Now, that leads to another question that how do you kind of handle frustrations (laughs) when things aren't going according to plan? And, you know, how do you how do you sort of keep that in check? That's a good question. Um, It's a good question. Uh, You know, I I feel that this is a hard question for me. (laughs) I mentioned it earlier to you. This is a hard question. We got to have some real talk on this podcast. Yeah, this is this is real talk. And it's not always um, going to be you know what, screw it. I eh, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, I've been on sets sometimes where it is hard for me to maintain my composure. Primarily because, you know, I have individuals that have worked with me that will give me raving reviews and just be like, you're fantastic. I'd work with you a thousand times over. And then I know that there are people that are like, I would never want to work with her again. And I feel the same way. Like I would not want to work with these people. It's a very mutual feeling that I would not want to work with them again. Primarily because it's not only a temperament issue that differs. It's also, I don't fare well with people that are just not on top of what they need to be doing. Like if you're a director, you should, you know, I understand first time directors, they're not always going to be the most decisive. And I understand that they have a lot riding on their shoulders and it could be very grueling and scary, but you as a director, you have to set the tone for the set And when you have a director that doesn't know what they want, is not good under pressure, um, doesn't really understand time, doesn't respect your voice as an AD, it causes a lot of issues. And as an AD, you're not able to do your job appropriately. And so to curb it, you know, I've been on sets where I never have that issue, where I'm having to catch an attitude or having to, you know what I mean, complain a lot. And then there are other times where that is just like, I was on a feature film and I remember we were, uh, we were setting up and it was going to take like 30 minutes or something like that. And I didn't have much to do. And I, I knew where all the departments were and all that stuff. And I walked off and I just cried because I was just exhausted. I was not only, I was just, I was just not in a good space. You were mentally. just at the end of your ropes in that I, situation. I was at the end of my ropes, honestly. It was, it was just, and even though the crew members on that set were like, you know, you're great. They, you know, they liked hanging out with me and they, you know, have since referred me for jobs. The individuals above the line, you know, and some folks b- below the line, I just wasn't, I just couldn't mesh with them, you know, and it caused friction on set. And so I wasn't the most nicest person, you know, because, and I also didn't have support didn't have a second didn't have a second second. I mean, I did have a second, but again, it pays to have experienced people in your department who know what they're doing, who can see things with you and help you along that process. And when you don't have that, it, it it's a lot of it is riding on your shoulders and it could be incredibly stressful. It so is. film sets could be incredibly stre- stressful. Yeah. yeah. I always call it peak hour time too. That's yeah. peak hour time. <laughs> Um, you know, versus pre-production where that's off peak time. I consider it. It, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Pre-production is like, you know, make sure that you are doing everything in your power to avoid issues that might come up in production. You have to see very far ahead, even as an AD, you know, production managers do that. And, you know, people that are in that pre-production process have to be looking forward of like, well, if we do it this way, what, what's the problem going to end up being? And so you don't want to just be like, we're not going to have an issue. Like, you know, sometimes like for instance, when I was PMing that feature, we were going to be shooting in January. And of course the constant question in my mind was, what if it snows? 
But if we have like a six footer, what are we doing? What yeah. what does that mean for production? What does that mean for you know paying folks? Are we putting- Was it shooting here in New York? Yeah, yeah, could definitely happen. You know, and you have to look into those things. Sometimes people are like they want to avoid, and you shouldn't. Yeah, I'm always looking at the weather patterns before a production. And I always tell people, I'm like, Hey, here's the plan. You know, when people say, this is my experience. I'm curious about the, what you think about this. When people say like, Oh, you know, if it's Monday and they're like, oh, Saturday, it's supposed to rain. I'm like, maybe I'm like, but we only, we're only going to know within 48 hours, like only within a 48 hour window based off my experience. That's when the weather is a, a bit more accurate. Yeah. Whether you could see, you know, you can't really tell if it's going to rain on Saturday on a Monday. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? The closer you get, the the more accurate. Yeah, the closer getting. you get. I, f- I find it to be fairly accurate within like two days uh, of the shoot yeah. day. Yeah, you always have to like in situations like that, you always want to make sure that you are providing a cushion. You know, you have to be thinking about those things and go, okay, well, what is going to happen if we do end up in rain? Are we just going to shoot through it? Or maybe we can swap days. You know, we have to contact the location. Would the location be okay with us swapping? Do we have the money to do that? What if we have a specific cast that is on that day and we have to move it? Do we have that person the, the day that we swap to? It's just a lot of things that end up coming up and it's not just the decision to swap or whatever. It's It can make or break, you know? And so you always have to be thinking ahead of what does this mean not only for, you know, for, for, for the film, but, you know, for, for production, all those variables that come into play with it, so. Yeah, and... We have a question from Alex, who's a cinematographer from Cliffside Park, New Jersey. Do you find it difficult to maintain the balance of above the line and below the line? And maybe maybe we should just give a, like, you know, for listeners that aren't quite in the industry, like, you know, above the line or, or, or people like the director, the producer, screenwriter, yeah. you know, and, you know, the top build actors. Yeah, the you know. the creative. That's kind of like above the line is the creative individual, the directors, the actors, uh, casting director, um, the writer, etc. And then below the line is myself, production design, a cinematographer, line producer. I kind of feel as an AD though. I, do you do you think about such things or like? I mean, in the sense of thinking about it, it's it, of course, yeah. Because as the AD, even though I'm considered below the line, I feel like I'm right on the line. Yeah, I agree. Actually, <laughs> you know what I mean? totally. I'm kind of like in this like purgatory state where I'm in between these worlds because as an AD, I have to work with a director to make sure that they get what they want to get within the time frame so that they can creatively flourish. You know, and you want to make sure that the director is sheltered from having to deal with any issues with production or any scheduling things like they just need to be focused on the creative vision and working with their actors and getting the most from them. And then I, as the AD then have to temper that with working with production, you know, and then working with all the department heads, like how much time do they need to set up? Oh, okay. Production design, you need two hours here. Great. Let me see if this is going to work. Well, G and E needs this much time and Oh, makeup is going to take up this much time. And it's, it's just like, you're constantly in the throes of, I want to make sure the director gets what they need. And then I also have to make sure that all the other departments get what they need. And sometimes departments have to sacrifice versus other departments. Sometimes, sometimes the director has to sacrifice on time and the things that they realistically want to get. It's a nice little dance. It's a seesawing dance between 
above the line and below the line, but the individual that I'm working with, individuals above the line specifically is the director and the, and, and the actors. Yeah. And of course, you know, below the line is the crew, you know, and I have to find a balance between the two. I mean, personally, I never, as a director, I never think about above the line or below the line when I'm on a set. Yeah. Yeah. Th- to me, that's more of a, like a budgeting sort of thing. Like when I'm building a, looking at a budget or, you know, that kind of thing. Although I will say though, there's been times where I say with my crew, and this is just my own philosophy. I'm like, with the crew, we have to run like an efficient military operation. But I was like, with the actors, they can't know about that. They don't want to know about a military operation. You know, like that's, that's yeah, that's a whole different yeah. thing. They have to be very much sheltered, you know, yeah. like you have to shelter the director and the cast from all the issues that come up. You know what I mean? Like yes. that, that's why, that's why it's so important to make sure that cast has their own separate area, area, holding area, to hang out. holding area so that they don't have to be involved in any of those issues that come up on set. You know, you don't want to bog their mind with that, nor do you want to bog the director's mind with that. So I, I agree. And I think that environment is so important. Part of what you're doing is setting the tone of the environment. Yeah. I always say this. I, Typically, people will say stuff like, you know, the AD is the, 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 the main person for morale on set. And I know it's like repetitious because you've heard this before, but it's the tr- like, I don't believe that. Like, I don't believe I've never. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think of it that way, honestly. Yeah. Neither do I. I yeah. feel like it's the AD. It's the director. And it's also production. All three of those like yeah. departments need to, you know, like if I could be a great AD, but if the director is just all over the place and doesn't know what they're doing there's no amount of you know what i can do to really appease or help in you know or help the crew you know that there's only so many things that i can do and you know if the director is okay and the ad is really good like then you have production that doesn't know what they're doing or production that's not on their p's and q's that could be an issue and so the crew ends up feeling you know morale just goes down yeah because People see what's going on. You yes. Know what I mean, like, Every, that's my mentality. That's my philosophy. Is everybody knows everything. Yeah, like they don't you need know? to know the specific details, but people. But they kind of feel it. They feel the gist yes, of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you can kind of, you know, you know what the deal is. Like, if you go to a location, then like you get kicked out of the location. Like, whose fault is that? I mean, productions probably, and that probably it is. You know, because they didn't know what you know they had to have gotten the you know permit and they should have been able to speak with whoever they needed to to make sure that you had the location for a set amount of time that happened to me on a set where you know I was working we were at a location we had already loaded in and then I guess the person that was the head of yes or no came by and was like you need to get the hell out of here and that ruined half the day and it's like production should have been on top of that and there's nothing that I can do as an AD to appease anybody you know it's sort of like Crew, crew members are coming up and going like, oh, am I going to get paid for the day? Like, you know, like, and that's, those are all production questions. And the director's kind of like, great, what does this mean for me? Now I have to shift things. And, you know, the actors are here and it just, it becomes a problem. And so the three of those, AD, director and production need to be on on, on, on top of their A game to make sure that morale on set is, is good. How about the dynamic between, Alex is also asking about the dynamic between the, the AD the director and the cinematographer mm-hmm. is there obviously there's many cases we know that directors work very closely there's a close cl- creative collaboration with their cinematographers sometimes they work together so many times over and over again i mean that's the case with me yes on alex gray but 
you know, sometimes it's not always that way. Or do you ever, do you ever find that you have to sort of referee situations where there's like disagreements or do you ever find that sometimes there are disagreements happening that kind of, you know, have to be reined in? In my experience, I feel that I I haven't had to referee between a DP and a director because they have such a close knit relationship that would have been built long before I come into the picture. Like there are some directors that work with one particular DP all the time and they just have a language with one another. And then there are those directors that find a new DP to work with and they're already working with them for a set amount of time before the AD comes on. And so what typically happens is I find that the DP and the director schmooze a little bit more and they start to kind of have this language. And if things are getting rushed, they kind of just look at each other. They say a couple of things. They know what they're doing next. And I'm like, Like wait a minute. A shorthand. Kind of like a shorthand or, you know what I mean? They, they start having conversations and I've found myself sometimes where I'm like having to reel in the director and the DP and going like, listen, y'all need to communicate with me about what we're doing. Because even though you just had this conversation, you're not telling me this. And now other people are getting confused. Yeah. It's not just what y'all two need to do. Right. I need to then you relay need to that. Liaise. Exactly. Because I need to relay that to, to the crew and be like, okay, so we're not doing that shot anymore. We're doing this shot. Okay, everybody, this is what we're doing. And I've had that issue. You know, I was on a set one time where it was a great crew, professional ass crew. Like it was, it was, it was a, it was a short seven days, but it was, I loved it. It was yeah. hard, but it was great. And what did you love about it? Like what, what made it so great? The, the fact that the crew, like the crew was just on it and, and the director, even though he was like a first timer, like he just had this passion about it and he had like a good aura to him. And I enjoyed like, I just enjoyed it, even though it was difficult because we we had, like, exterior, like, scenes on a beach and it was, like, freezing outside. And then we had to go out to, like, we had to ride out to, I think, uh, it was Pennsylvania or something. And, like, it was, it was just, like, uh, there was a lot going on. And I just loved it because I, I felt like everybody was just on it, you know. And it felt like, even though it was hard, it was easy. When you're working with professionals, it's just so much easier because people get it. Yeah. And we had, we were in this theater. We were running out of time and I was like, listen, we need to move because we still have like some, we still have like a portion left of our day. And the DP was like, listen, I have a shot. It's going to, it's going to be fantastic. We need to do it. And I looked at the director and I was like, we don't have the time. I'm like, by the time he sets this up, by the time we rehearse it, like, it's just, we're going to waste time. And the director was like, okay, then we're not doing it. And then the DP came in and he was like, he convinced him to do it. (laughs) And so we spent 30 minutes setting it up and then we had to rehearse it. And then, you know, like the DP who I know who's, he's fantastic. He's, he's great. Um, you know, he got a little irritated because like the rehearsal was taking long, but I'm like, we have like a bunch of extras here. Of course it was going to take time. And so we ended up losing like, I think 45 to an hour. Sure. And then the director lost time towards the end. And because we had to move and we had to go, you know, he, he, he lost what he lost and that was that. And so I, I contend with that a lot because the DP swords sort of, sort of kind of like, they always want more time. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they, <laughs> There's never enough time to light a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that some directors just naturally have a better sense of time than others? Absolutely. And I love working with those directors. So there's a director that I work with, uh, Jeremiah Kip. He uh, used to be an AD. So he gets it. He yeah. understands this process. And he's just this like, he's such a sweet man. And he's just, he knows what he wants. And he's good with, you know, d- directing his 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 cast. And, you know. And he's very decisive, it sounds like. And he's, yeah, and he's, and he's decisive. He is decisive and he knows how to work under pressure. 
and the times that I have worked with him, you know, if I tell him, Hey, we have 20 minutes, he'll come to me and be like, okay, cool. Like we'll, we'll get it done. Or he'll be like, you know what? I need a little bit more time, but we'll, we'll finish our day. And I trust that. Like there have been directors that go like, we got it. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, we don't got shit. Like we're not, we're going to be over. But with him, I trust that what he says is going to happen. And so it, it relieves me as an AD in some ways because I feel like, okay, I'm in good hands. I'm, I'm in good hands with a director who knows about time. And I don't feel like, yes, there's pressure and I have to manage it and monitor the time, but I'm not having to go like it. It's a hard thing for me to explain. I think if you're an AD, you understand what I'm saying. I know you're talking about. So yeah. Yeah. Because time, people that don't know that haven't been on a film set, time evaporates when you're on a film set. Yeah. You know, no, no matter how early your call time is, it feels like there's never enough hours in the day. I feel like that's, that's the biggest challenge most of the time of, of shooting is that, you know, you're, you're battling the clock. Yeah. All, all, all the time. And like, even, even in pre-pro and like, when I have a schedule, like a daily schedule, I'm like, okay, this is what our days are going to look like. And, you know, everybody looks at it and they, they give the green light. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And then on the day things come up, you know, like a cable is missing, the camera, something's wrong with the camera, the cast is late, like anything comes up and it's just, and you have, it's like a constant, like, it's, it's like a time bomb, yeah. you know, like. It's an ebb and flow. Yeah. 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 And then things have to be sometimes compromised and there's a way to, I feel like creatively improvise on certain things because it's going to happen. I always say, I'm a big believer in preparation. And since like I mentor the film students, I always say like, you know, better to be as prepared as possible because there might be, you know, things that change. I think directing is problem solving. A big part of directing is problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. Major, yeah. You know, like, and problems are going to happen. If you're more equipped, kind of what you were talking about before, anticipating things that could happen, then it puts you in a better mentality, you know, to kind of handle things and be quick on your feet. I feel like having a, a plan makes you quicker on your feet and then you're sort of your your head is in the game so to speak versus not having a plan and being loosey-goosey and then you know just trying to improvise everything yeah no 100 percent um yeah one of the jobs of a rather one of the resp- the responsibilities of a director is to problem solve when you have a good dp and a good relationship with your dp and a good um production team like a like a go-to producer and stuff you can shoot off ideas you know what i mean so it's not just all on you and the ad department as a first ad i have to also be on my feet to be like okay crap we just lost time here and I'm already, I'm looked at my day and I'm like, okay, all right, if we block for this long and then we, we set up for this long, okay, I have to take, I have to shave off some time here. I have to shave some time here. Maybe if I can like, and it's like a constant numbers game of like, how much time do we have and how much time can I take out from here and add here? And you have to problem solve and be like, okay, we're, we're in this setup. What if we ended up doing this, this, that, instead of what we originally wanted to do? So it's also like, you have to kind of think ahead and be like, okay, this is where we are now what is going to happen in the next hour. You always have to be, you have to have foresight. You have to be thinking about the next thing and how it's going to affect the schedule. So if you know something now, you're like, how is this going to affect the next 30 minutes, the next hour, the next two hours, you know? And so I think the the AD has to manage that. And the director obviously has to figure out a way to shoot it and edit it. You know, like he has, he or she has to edit it in their head. Absolutely. I would say that too. I, I come from a background as an editor, which I think really, gave me a substantial foundation as a director 
I don't think I, I, I didn't always know that I wanted to be a director. Like I just, at some point I just gravitated toward getting involved in film. I was like, maybe I'll just be an editor. I have a background in editing and I have a respect for editing, but it, it really did give me an advantage in directing. Cause then you're sort of piecing the puzzle in your head and knowing what it's, what it's going to look like before it happens or, you know, like you, or if you have to improvise, then you could kind of do that in a way where, you know, things, there's a cohesion. Yeah, for sure. You know? Because that's going to happen, especially on the independent film. You know, I even saw, I think, a Ron Howard masterclass where he was kind of doing a, a scene in the movie Frost, Nixon. And, you know, he's working, he's a great director, used to working on big, big budget projects. But he kind of did this cool exercise. He was like, all right, well, we're going to do this scene from Frost, Nixon as if it was an indie film and we're running out of time. How would I cover this? You know, how would I do, do it as a two shot? with both actors in the frame, sustain the same amount of tension. We don't have time to get coverage, you know, reversals or anything like that, but we could still cover the scene in a, in a creative and dynamic way. And I've, I've definitely found myself in those situations where, you know, you're, you're battling the clock. And I've said to my cinematographer, like ran an idea and he's like, ah, I don't know. That seems like a wild idea. And I'm, and my thing is like, well, it's better than having an empty frame. Let's try that versus not having anything at that point. And then he's like, yeah, that's true. So, you know, and, and you don't want to compromise too much. You know, actually, my cinematographer said to me once, could we sort of get this shot? We're running behind time. It's that ebb and flow of compromising, I, I find. But you don't want to compromise too much because then if you, he said to me, actually, he's like, if you compromise this, he's like, well, yeah, we could compromise this shot. But if we compromise this shot and we compromise that shot and we compromise this other thing, then the whole film is compromised. So you find yourself compromising everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I've been in those situations where, you know, the the clock is ticking and it's like, we need to wrap. Like camera needs to be wrapped because we have a loadout for like two hours, yeah. let's say. And it's like, we need to go. And the, and the location has a hard out for us. Like we, we don't, right. we can't. The director is like, okay, okay, okay. And I hear those conversations of like, well, man, like we need this shot. Otherwise it's going to compromise this scene. It's going to compromise this, like this tension or whatever it is that they're trying to get out of it. And some directors will be like, okay, fine. And then others will be like, no, like we need to get this. And if it means that we go into OT, then it is what it is. And then it just is what it is. And so when I hear that the director and like the DP are trying to like, you know, powwow, then I'm like, okay, we're going to go into OT. Then I go to production and go like, listen guys or gals, this is the situation. We are going to be going into OT. So can you call the location and find out whether or not we're able to stay? And of course production then sits and goes like crap. How much is this going to cost us? Like, are we going to be able to do that? And the production can come back and be like, no, we literally need it. We have a hard out. And so then it's, and it just becomes this whole like problem solving between these, the, the individuals at the top of the chain, I guess you can say, trying to make sure that the day is done and that the director gets what they want. But it's like, there's always these conflicting forces against you because you don't want to compromise your vision, but you also have to understand that there's time and budget it's like this triangle. It's an ebb and flow. Yeah. yeah. Between the triangle of like creative, budget, and time. Yeah. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. And I think actually that's one of the most unfortunate things about, uh, you know, just indie filmmaking compared to a Ridley Scott movie where they're shooting it for six months. Yeah. So you have to shoot a movie and it used to be the standard, it's like 23 days. Yeah. For an independent film. Now I'm hearing, and I don't know if you've been hearing this too, but it's a disturbing trend of people shooting movies in 10 days. 
It's I hear it very often uh, and I don't like it. I don't really hear. I personally haven't heard of people trying to shoot a feature film in 10 days. I've heard of people doing a, a feature in 15, roughing it out for maybe 16 days. I think the average amount for like an indie feature at a not so high budget, like let's say 500K or something like that is roughly about 20 days. Roughly about, and it, it honestly depends, but I would say in my experience, the features that I've worked on have been that amount of days yeah. around the, around that budget area. And even then that's t- like, you know, let's say it's a 90 page script. Would you say it's like usually like what, like 90 minute? Roughly, yeah, yeah, roughly, roughly like, like about 80, 90. 80, 90. Like, I think yeah. that's a good running time, yeah. you know? And it's hard because, and a lot of these scripts end up, you know, you have to start shaving things down, locations, the amount of cast, the amount of background, the amount of you know, you start to kind of find ways to work around all of these issues, you know, and in indie filmmaking, you, you don't have the luxury. You have to you know, like, these are the amount of days and this is what we have to stick to. And, you know, if you have a good line producer and you have the budget, you always have to have a contingency of sorts should, should hit the fan. But ultimately you really want a penny. Like you want to try to be as precise with the amount of money you're spending as you possibly can. Unfortunately, I've been hearing about a lot of films <laughs> lately, and it's very it's very surprising. I was just talking to a friend of mine that's an actor that, you know, he's shooting a movie next month, and they're doing it in 10 days, and, you know, Alex worked on a movie oh. that was in 10 days, and, you know, I'm really friendly with the producer. He's a great guy to me that I would, I, I don't know how, I wouldn't want to approach something like that. In fact, that's the thing that I would fight the most for once I start having more budget on my projects is literally just adding days. Yeah. You know, it's just like, hey, how could how could we do this in, you know, maybe 30 days? Yeah. I mean, if you're doing a 10 day, you run the risk of and again, it depends on the script. Like if you're in one location the entire time and you're just kind of in a a house, you Uh, could you could make it work. You You know, everything is dialogue. heavy. Yeah, Yeah, you could probably make it work. It's just going to be, you know, exhausting and, you know whatever but you run the risk of one having set morale go down very quickly yeah two running the risk of going over 12 hour days which we already as an industry pisses me the hell off that like our industry you know if you say this to somebody like you know working 12 hour days well we'll deal with it that's the industry and i'm kind of like why like I, i understand it because of all of the element loading in loading out lunch you know, setting up scenes, this, this, that, makeup, blah, blah, blah. I get it, but it's just, it's exhausting. Yeah. Because your day is not 12 hours. If you're traveling, if you're talking about a 15, 16 hour day and you're doing this day in, day out, it's exhausting, not only physically, but mentally, especially when you're on a set that's chaotic. It will, you can get sick, you know? It's, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm just so against it. I hate it. I chaotic sets. Which, which funny enough, I don't think it's actually relevant to the end product of the movie, if it's a chaotic set or not, or if it's a good set. Like th- there's almost not an extreme correlation like people think. What do you, and you mean in terms of Okay, like- so this is how I look at it. I think there's four categories, right? Obviously the most ideal category uh-huh. is it's a smooth set and it's a great film. Okay. Obviously, that's, you know, it happens, win-win situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Second best case scenario, uh-huh. chaotic set, great film. Okay. That might not be the second best scenario for you as an AD, but, you know, as I will say from my point of view, that's the second best scenario. That's actually the scenario. Well, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, go third, ahead. third, third. <laughs> I want to hear it. I wanna, let's unpack that. So third scenario is, is the smooth set, but it's a bad outcome of yeah. the film. Not ideal. Yeah. And then obviously the worst case scenario is it's a chaotic 
set and bad film. Yeah. Like, so what were you going to say? You were going to say something on this topic. You're like, it's funny that. No, I because it. You have a lot of thoughts about this? No, I I think you're right, you know, but you're saying that it doesn't matter for the end product. What do you mean by that? Like whether or not it's chaotic? No, I'm not not, like one of these persons. Like screw the crew. No, 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 not at all, actually. And people that know that that have worked with me, they typically, you know, I I, I like to treat people with respect, honestly. Like, you know, like, and I don't care who you are. I'm very... I think everybody that that knows and works with me knows that I'm not like a hierarchical sort of person. There's so many people that are that I'm like, hey, I'm up here on this position and you're down here. And I I really never treat people that way. I try to treat everybody with a level of respect of how I would want to be treated if I were them. But I will say that sometimes that I think there's things that are happening, you know, that sometimes circumstances are changing, especially on an independent film. You know, sometimes you're dealing with crazy things. Sometimes there's external factors we were shooting something where somebody was trying to shut down our production because he wanted the property manager of a building to get paid like some sort of payout he's like oh well he's a friend of mine i'm like what you know just crazy circumstances that you just have to sort of deal with yeah and sometimes there's chaotic things that could happen that are outside of your control you still have to persevere and make a good film so that that's kind of like for me when i what i'm talking about like hey i don't thrive on having a chaotic set you know and i i've heard of other directors that are very acclaimed directors that they're like oh man they're yeah they're very very tough to work with those folks and yeah you know but they make great films you know like that's that's not ideal either like you don't want to create a landscape where people are not feeling respected or being abusive as far as their schedule like you know making them work 16 hour days you know at rates that you know that's why there's a strike that yeah is impending yeah in our industry because um unsafe conditions but like bad pay yeah and, and it's, it's like and streaming services that you know now now are more powerful than film studios in terms of their yearly budgets of how much like what's netflix's budget for a slate of films like a, mm-hmm. like you know over a billion dollars yeah you know that's that's a lot you know yeah and behind all of that is are are the crews and crews should be treated with respect because we do a lot of work i think that you know even during covid i posted something on facebook about you know support you know crew members support us because behind all the books that you read the music you listen to behind the shows that you watch the movies that you watch is a crew and most people are just seeing the end product and they sit there and go wow the director and the cast and i and I, i understand that but at the same time, like, man, like when, when you look at the end credits and you see all of those names and all of the, like all those people and all the positions and all the things that they had to do, you know, it's a hard industry to be in. It's yes. and, and, and it's not, sometimes you just, you know, people are kind of enamored with the excitement of what it means to be on a film set. Like, Ooh, you worked on a film set, but they don't necessarily understand what actually goes down on a film set and how grueling it is. For I agree. Member. It's a grind, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and I always say to my, I say to my students, I say to people that are starting out, it, it is a grind, but let's try to think about the bigger picture, you know, because otherwise it, it could make you feel crazy in the moment. There could be a lot of tedium, I mean, editing is a tedious process, yeah. you know, and that's something you have to really think about the bigger pu- picture, you know, you're yeah, composing absolutely. these shots into scenes and then scenes into sequences to make narrative cohesive thing. And so to me, that's kind of the excitement uh, is like you're doing all these things. And I'm trying to embrace, I think in the beginning of me getting involved with being a filmmaker, I was so en- enamored about the process. I was like, oh, I'm so excited just to be on set and be here and doing it, you know, and then that started to get away from me at some point 
And I'm like, you know what? I just care about the finished thing. Like whatever we have to do to get like the finished thing. That's what's important. Now I'm kind of coming back to like, you know what? The finished thing, obviously that's, that's ultra important, but it's also important to enjoy the process to like, to enjoy yourself while you're doing it because this life is so fleeting just in general, no matter what you're doing, you know, shout out to this book that I read called the power of now by Eckhart Tolle, where he talks about that. He's like, you know, whatever you're doing, sort of try to enjoy what you're doing. Use that present moment for it to be the best, you know, that it could be. Yeah. You know, and one thing that attracted me to this medium is that it is collaborative. You're working with the crew, you're working with the team and, you know, it's a collaborative art form in, in, in ways that many other things aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's uh, a friend of mine said this, you know, we were on set and she was like, you know, where else could you work, you know, every day, like in, in, in a fantasy world, you know, in, in, in an imagined world, this is, this is what we do every single day, you know? And I, I think a part of that is, is fun. You know, when I think back, I'm like, you know, Five years ago when I was working a nine to five, I didn't think that I was going to be working on film sets. And like now that I've worked on film sets, it's you sit and you go, wow, it's pretty cool. You know, working with cameras and crews and like in a story and actors and it's fun. And I think that's what what people tend to like moths to a flame. They like that the 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 excitement and the fun behind it. But yeah. they they don't necessarily respect what we do because they don't like a nurse has an important job. Imagine all of the essential workers during COVID versus a person who's making a film. Of course, they're, you know, the essential workers are going to be put up on, on, on a pedestal because of the amount of work that they have to do that is important. And then we work in a more, we work in an entertainment fashion where it's like, is this, is, is it a necessity for people? And I think in a way it is because we want, it's an opiate. It's an opiate for people to get away from their everyday lives and to dive into someone else's world. But and also sometimes connect with other people, like empathize with other people. But I think film is one of the rare mediums where it's very visual and obviously the audio experience. But sometimes you're actually witnessing what people are thinking, you know, yeah, yeah, in, in the subjectivity of how their point of view might be, you know, and it could make somebody more empathetic to other people, other types of people, other types of cultures, other types of situations, you know. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it exposes you to, to the human psyche in ways that we wouldn't be able to, to experience in our ordinary lives. Like, you know, a movie can take you to a different time and a different place and a different situation and put you in, in that person's world versus, you know, you know, if, if, the, if you live an ordinary life, you, you wouldn't have lived those. You could live a thousand different lives through, through the characters in a film, you know? And so it's, it's exciting in that way. Well said. So th- this is going to bring us to our, this is a good segue to bring <laughs> us to our second portion, which we're going to talk about two of your favorite movie scenes. Now I try to make this question for people. This is a question for the audience that I ask uh, to my, to my guests uh, ahead of time. Usually, you know, like, Hey, think about two scenes that you'd like to discuss, you know, try not to overthink it. I say it doesn't have to be your two absolute favorite movies ever but just two scenes from any films that you found to be very impactful okay and lena had (laughs) referenced a scene from the movie the revenant actually i don't want to do that one anymore okay we don't have to do the revenant yeah we could do you want to focus on the spotlight scenes i mean i'm not spotlight um whiplash uh, whiplash yeah i don't know why i said spotlight you know, okay, so I kind of want to focus if if I'm able to. I want to do a scene from Whiplash 
a shot within a scene from <laughs> yes and then another scene from apocalypto let's oh i love apocalypto yeah. so let's do it that you're busting out a wild card on us <laughs> which i like which one do we want to start with whiplash or whiplash first let's start with uh whiplash because in preparation for this discussion i started watching whiplash i saw it when it first came out loved it and i watched it again well, I watched ha exactly half of it last night, very late at night at like two or three o'clock in the morning oh, wow. um, in preparation for this okay. discussion. But then it was so late that I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was amazing. It's yeah. it really not it just holds up. I'm like, man, this is this is amazing. Like like I was more like in awe of how amazing it was like years later watching it. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. It's you know, it. Should we give a recap? Okay, like for, you know, I mean, many people have seen spoilers. Whiplash. Yeah, we, I, listen, at this point, if you haven't seen Whiplash, there's going to be spoilers. How dare you? you know, turn off the podcast. <laughs> if you, you know, it's, it's a movie about a, a guy who's a college drummer that's trying to get into this elite level, advanced school orchestra taught by this maniacal, seemingly very rude and, narcissistic sort of professor and it's a question of like well what is that professor's deal is he like insulting these it's like also like a character study i find of the professor is like hey is he actually a villain or is he actually a protagonist is he because you have miles teller the main character the protagonist of the film and he's very driven you know as a drummer and you know he shows that he's a little cutthroat as well because there's that early scene where he supposedly forgot the other student's book mm -hmm. that, you know, he's supposed to be uh, that other student's backup. And that other student, you know, he's a little rough with him in the beginning. He's kind of like turned my pages and, you know, rude with him because he's like the new guy. And, and maybe he's a little, he's standoffish to say the least. So he didn't treat Miles Teller with the respect, but he definitely purposely forgot. To me, that was apparent. Like that book was purposely lost. Yeah. And then Miles Teller knew the whole song by heart, knowing that the other guy wouldn't. And then he would have to play, you know, yeah. and then he gets in, he gets accepted into that band. And then, you know, the professor sort of kind of pulls these shenanigans where then he brings in another guy to do that to Miles Teller yeah. to keep him on his toes. He yeah. likes to. Andrew, Andrew's his name, Andrew and Fletcher. Andrew and Fletcher. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Fletcher's the. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're yeah using the, the character yeah. names. Good call. Yeah. So, so talk about it. So, yeah, he, so Andrew, you know, uh, Fletcher kind of shows an, in, he shows an interest in, in Andrew and he's like, listen, I want you to come in and uh, I want you to be part of our, our group. And he comes in and, you know, and I think Andrew, he's, he's feeling kind of on, on, on top of his world right now. And he's like, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm here, you know, this, this guy Fletcher saw something in me. And if he saw something in me, that means something. And, you know, so he's sitting there and of course, like, you know, uh, he, he comes in and everyone's looking at him like the new, you know, the new kid on the blog, like, who the hell is this guy? Um, and so it's this like, there's this tension between the other students and him. And it's like that awkwardness that we all felt when we went to college, when you come into like a new classroom with new students and you're having to prove yourself, especially at this level, you know, these are, these are students that really know what they're doing and to be among them, even though you're in this com community of sorts, you're having to compete and showcase that I deserve to be here. And this is a moment for him to be like, okay, all that hard work that I've been doing, like, you know, practicing on my own and stuff. 
now I'm able to, to, to showcase that. And this is, this is my right. So he's sitting there and, you know, Fletcher comes in and he's like, you know, all suave and stuff. And he seems to be like, you know, a, a good guy. Little does Andrew know, you know, and so they start playing and Andrew's doing his thing drumming and Fletcher's just like, nope, hold up. <laughs> like s- something's wrong here. Like either someone's going too fast or too slow. Like you're not on, you're not on the beat. And it is such a, it's this scene is like the whole movie in, in of itself. Like there wasn't a moment in the, in the film where I was bored. It just, it kept my attention. The editing is so good to me because I'm like, I'm like it's just like one moment to the next and the next. And I'm like, what is happening? And like, there's the tension is right. And everything is just, I love it. And so he's sitting there and all of the cockiness or all of the confidence that Andrew had slowly like seeps from him. Yeah. Little by little as this scene progresses because Fletcher turns on him. That's right. Because Andrew's doing his thing and he's like, you're, you're going too fast or too slow. And Andrew's like, oh, okay. And then he, Fletcher kind of, it's like little by little by little. And then he lets Andrew do his thing. And all of a sudden he just takes his chair and throws it across the room. And everything's like, and Andrew's just looking at him in absolute shock. And Fletcher rails on his ass. And I love this scene because a part of me is just like, man, who is this guy, Fletcher? Is, is this guy just an asshole who's been abusing these students? Or is he one of these old school guys that believes in this very abusive way of discipline? And I think that many of us, uh, you know, if, if you grew up in an environment where getting good grades and being the best, as, you know, that, that you could be was very important, you might have had either a, a parent or a teacher that might have railed on you like that. And that was supposed to be motivating. And that's not always motivating. Hence yeah. why Sean Casey, one of, you know, Fletcher's previous students, killed himself because of the pressure and because of the abuse that Fletcher was putting on him. And so you kind of, this scene to me was, it was just, it, it made me feel so bad for Andrew, especially because he's sitting there and he, he feels this like immense confidence when he comes in. And Fletcher just rails on him and like Andrew cries and he gets smacked and you just sit there and you, and there's so many questions that come up because you're like, what's the cost of success? Is this worth it? Yes. Like what's what's the cost of this for you, Andrew? Like, is this really that important? And the thing is, I almost feel like Fletcher, it's like when you're in a, when you're in an abusive relationship and there's a toxic partner, like for instance, I read all this stuff about like narcissists. Like a narcissist knows their victim. They, they, they pick certain people for a reason because they know that they're going to be able to abuse them. And I feel like did Fletcher see something in Andrew that made him feel like I can, I can really abuse this kid and manipulate him and like push him to the edge because I know that deep down inside he wants that because he, he wants the greatness. He wants the greatness. He wants to be great. And I think this is going to work for him. So he almost like chooses his victims in a way. Yeah, that scene, it was, I just sat there in shock and I'm like, you could hear like a pin drop, you know? Yes. Like, I I, I, I didn't want anybody talking. I'm like, shut up. Like, I have to watch it, it was so visceral. Oh my God. Yeah. Because you almost feel like he's abusing you. And yeah. You're like, you fucking dick. <laughs> I'm not a musician, but it, it brings you into the world of what it feels like to sort of be in that situation. It's so it's like, it really brings you into perspective. 
Yeah, yeah, because you're sitting there looking at him and you're like, and, and, and also the other students, it's like the other students are quiet and some of them are satisfied by it because they're like, good, get the hell out of here. And then there are other students that are like, you know, just happy that they're not the ones to have to go through that. And it's just such a, there's such a tense, there's such tension in that scene and you watch it and, and I'm scared of Fletcher and I'm not even in the freaking room, you know? Extreme level of tension. This is something that I think about a lot. I think like a, a great film and a good director, like they're, they're good at being able to create a vibe within that scene. Yeah, I heard, I read that the director told Fletcher, I don't know specifically for, for, for that scene, but I think in general, he told him like, listen, take this character and like make him an animal. Like yeah. do, do what you will, like push, push the seams to try to take this character as far as you can go in this element. And I think that that was the scene that, you know, where Fletcher took it to, to, to this like level of just absolute disrespect. Yeah. That, that is one scene that I absolutely loved in whiplash. And then the other scene rather shot in um, whiplash that I liked was the, the very last scene of the film. And this is what you when did he goes, not see. When he goes to see him at the restaurant. I do remember from originally seeing it when it came out in 2015, when he goes to the city and Fletcher is at that club. At the jazz club and he's yeah. now playing. Yeah. So the that wasn't the last scene. The very last scene okay. is so Fletcher tells Andrew, like, listen, come on down to my to my jazz, uh, you know, uh, club, orchestra, whatever. And, you know, I'll have you come in as a drummer. Let's kind of like, you know, squash this. You know, so Andrew comes by and he's like, okay, you know, he's feeling nervous because he's like, oh my God, like yeah. how's this going to play out? And so he's sitting there and he realizes that Fletcher set him up and Fletcher, you know, Fletcher's like, screw you, you little shit. Like you think that I don't know that you're the one who like went against me on that Sean Casey case. Like I know that it was you. And Andrew realizes crap, this guy set me up again. And he, they're about to play music that I don't even have like, you know, the, the sides for, like, I have yeah. no idea what I'm about to do. And so it's a very vindictive thing to do. Very vindictive. And so Andrew walks off and his dad's there and his dad's like, screw it. Don't worry about it. Whatever. Just like, let's, let's put this in the past. And yeah. Andrew's like, no. So he goes back on that stage and he starts playing caravan and he's just like, fuck you Fletcher. Like, I'm not like, we're, I don't care what the hell you say. And he just, and Fletcher's like, what is this guy doing? And he starts playing his heart out, like all of the abuse and all of the issues and just that entire horrible situation that he had to go through. It's like this one moment he's making up for all of that. And so this is the shot that I absolutely loved in this scene. As he's playing, he's doing his solo. He is just knocking it out of the ballpark, sweating, just like all that. There's like this, like almost like a dolly shot. No, I think it was either study cam dolly, whatever, of the father. And the father's watching backstage. But Paul Reiser plays the father. Yeah. Great performance. But. Yeah, great performance. And he can see his son from from the backstage. And his face is cut off. Like the doors are covered. Like the doors are covering his face like about this much. So you see his eyes, nose, and his lips. And as he's like, as Andrew's in his moment of just like utmost great solo performance, camera moves in and... The father is just, he looks like he's in awe. It is just, it's like a second. It yeah. is a, a second of a shot. That to me, it just gave me chills. And the reason why was because 
the entire film, his father doesn't support him. Yeah, like that earlier scene when there's the two other all-star football players and Fletcher's being completely and utterly ignored. I, I empathized with the movie Whiplash because it, it shows about obsession and about greatness and about, I think, every person that is pursuing something, they want to attain greatness. But then it's like, well, what's the cost of that? Yeah. At what level is it appropriate to sacrifice? And at what level is it, are you going way beyond that, you know, maybe it's actually detrimental? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I thought that movie really explored it extremely yeah, well. I, absolutely. Because it's like, there's a specific mentality around individuals that work in the entertainment industry where there's a lack of respect for what we do because it's considered, it's, it's a non-essential, you know, it's yeah. not a necessity, you know? And so because of that, it, 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 it's, it's unfortunate, honestly, because watching the film, I'm like, man, he doesn't see his son's greatness. Yeah. Just because you don't know how to do math or you're not good in science or you're not the next doctor or whatever, that doesn't mean that you, you have greatness someplace else. And if it's artistically, creatively, that's a beautiful thing. You know, you can't deny the impact of beautiful art and beautiful music and beautiful cinema there's a reason why it exists. There's a reason why it's important. There's a like, and it's unfortunate that in a lot of public schools that don't have funding, they end up cutting costs in which areas, of course you need math and science, but they cut arts programs. And it's unfortunate because art programs, music programs, all that stuff, they allow your children to sort of, you know, allow their imagination to thrive in a way that could in effect affect their let's say like let's say you're an architect you know maybe if you had art in your life you know because our architecture is drawing and all that stuff or whatever like you want to make sure that you have children that have a good well-rounded education and taking away art could potentially be taking away a lot of ideas and thoughts and just creativity that they could apply to other fields and so watching him kind of struggle through to prove to people that I'm just as good as you. And then having the, your sole guardian, the person that you've lived with, who you respect and you care about, not take it seriously is, is very sad. And so that moment for any kid out there or any adult that never felt like their parents respected what they did, it was almost like a slap in the face to all those parents. It's like, screw you, mom and dad. Like, this is what I could be. And that's an interesting interpretation of it. I it, it because I actually interpreted I, I I thought that the that Paul Reiser, like as his dad, he was he was overall pretty nice to him. Like, you know, they go to the movies. He he would do some sort of annoying things like put all the I thought that was very impactful. Yeah. Where like he didn't um Andrew the Andrew character didn't like to eat the popcorn mixed in with the chocolate he just ate the popcorn but yet Paul Reiser just mixed it all together as if it's for both of them like yeah. he could have easily just had the chocolate in his hand because the chocolate he was just eating the chocolate I, I almost feel that <laughs> I almost feel in a way that you know if you look at Andrew and his and, his, and the male role models in his life if you take a look at his dad, his dad seems to be soft-spoken. He's He seems to be submissive. He seems to be yeah. the type of guy that just wants to go the, uh, the, the, the typical route without risk. And then he meets Fletcher. 
And Fletcher is this man. Very who, bold. Very bold, who knows what he wants and sort of takes it to another level. And there's a part of that that I think Andrew didn't get living with his dad. There's like a femininity that his dad exudes, which, and I'm not trying to place femininity in the negative yeah, you're light. Yeah, placing no. a value judgment on it. No, it's more so that there, there's a softness there. And I think that Fletcher kind of brought out this more aggressive sort of comp, like competition and like, I need to do this. And like, he kind of wants to, he wants to shift everything that maybe reminds him of his dad and the life that he leads and try to just shift it entirely, which obviously is detrimental to him because that's not who he is. You know, he's, he's like a mix between the two. Like you can have both of those polar polarizing sides and just be yourself. And I think that that experience as difficult as it was allowed him to get on that stage. Cause if, if let's say Andrew would not have gone through what Fletcher put him through, would Andrew have stepped on that stage? Maybe he would have looked at his dad and said, sure, you know what? Let's turn around. No, he was like, screw this. Like I'm my own guy and no, I'm proving to you dad and to this guy and to everybody else and to myself first and foremost that I can do this and that I deserve to be here. And I think that that experience with Fletcher, it's kind of like, you know, we learn our lessons, not when we're comfortable. We learn them when yes. we're, when we have struggle and we're, we're not comfortable. That's so true. It has to be discomfort for us to grow. I totally agree with you there. We have to, and I, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that. It's like pushing yourself past your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, pushing. Sometimes I've been guilty of pushing myself to the limit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I try it. I'm, a, I'm a person that tries to pack in a lot in each day yeah. for people that know me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, amazing, amazing sort of uh, commentary about Whiplash. I really appreciate your like feedback about it. And I, I share your love of that movie. It's it's a yeah, really it's, it's a brilliantly made film by uh, Damien Chazelle, who also yeah. wrote it and really talented director. And you know he he did he did uh, a short, which won some awards, and that's how he ended up getting this film funded. And I think the film was three million dollars, and it like ra- raked in forty nine million. That's amazing. Which is like and and amazing and number. and it's deserving. It's absolutely well, well deserving. deserved. Well yeah. deserved. It's yeah. a film that truly transcends. Yeah. And it's a good example of uh, I was on a plane coming home from LA recently. And I love, I love the cinematography in, in Whiplash. You know, I love the color, the color. I didn't like the color palette. I like the color in palette. It for some reason. I'm like the yellows, which I'm like, Oh, I hate this. I, I thought it was appropriate for the film. I'm a big believer in, I don't have like a cookie cutter sort of approach to, yeah. So like, I think like, so it's funny because I was on a plane and somebody was watching Whiplash and then behind them, somebody was watching David Fincher's Zodiac and mm. you couldn't almost have, two films with really <laughs> a, like a different yeah. sort of look like you know like e- both with great cinematography but in very different ways yeah. you know and you know in, in ways that you know the whiplash it, it was a cinematography to tell that story it, you know it's definitely stylized of course yeah um but but it created a vibe like i love even when he went downstairs he was in his more early in the film when he was in his more junior level class like the the regular run-of-the-mill sort of school orchestra and then he kind of sneaks down the hallway like downstairs and he hears just like Fletcher's advanced class he's like what is going on over there yeah. and you and, it, and it's a vibe yeah that's what I'm talking about and, yeah. and it's intriguing you're like wow like what is, like they're on some next level yeah literally yeah and it's about and it's about a guy that's leveling up you know and like 
you know, and what does it take to do that? What level? Yeah, it's really a lot of amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I freaking love Whiplash. And anytime that I've, I've told people to watch it, they always come back and go like, man, that was a good film. That was outstanding. Like, was a, yeah. It's outstanding. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Now let's talk about our second second. Yeah. Film, which is Apocalypto. Apocalypto. Uh, I think it's underrated, Apocalypto. Not a lot of people talk about it. Like, there's people that talk about it, but not. it's <sighs> it's not always talked about. It's and, not. And I, I, that's also a film that I, very impactful. Yes. I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, I've watched Apocalypto three times, and I know that Mel Gibson is a questionable character. Um and I know that, you know, I, I recommended the film to a friend of mine and uh, she was very particular about the, the, the historical accuracy. And she was like, I couldn't watch it because it's not historically uh, accurate. I understand if you're a stickler for that, it might be, you know, kind of like, like, oh, like you know. as far as the timeline, spoiler alert at the like at the end, you know, the. I thought it was also brilliant too, like seeing the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa oh. Maria coming. That was just like, oh <laughs> shit, he just went through like the oh. most epic of epic challenges. And then to see those ships with conquistadors coming, that's like, I it was so to, impactful. Yes, I wanted to mention. Oh man, I wanted to mention that because it was like, oh my god, like that film. Uh, to me, all like, right. So give us a summary of what the film's about in like a few lines. So pretty much uh, the the lead character is a, a guy named Jaguar Jaguar Paw, and he his community gets ravaged by uh, like an enemy tribe, and him and all of and this, he's a Mayan. Yeah, and all of the individuals that have survived in his um, in, in in his village are now on the way to some kind of place, and they have no idea where the hell they're going. And they are pretty much when they get to the destination, they realize that they're about to be sacrificed. And Jaguar Paw, through you know uh, a godly intervention, uh, has his life spared, and he then. Then at this point, there's an action-packed film of him trying to outrun and outsmart the group of individuals that ravaged his village. And what I loved about the film is the fact that, you know, a lot of action films are CGI. There's cars, yeah. there's guns, there's a that's man right. that's always in a suit that never breaks a sweat. <laughs> or if he takes like a three-story fall from a building, he could just get up and keep running. And keep, <laughs> his hair is like, you know, beautifully never like... Never a hair out of place. And in this film... They didn't use, you know, they just, I think I read something that Mel Gibson wanted to pretty much take the action genre and flip it. And instead of using CGI and all this stuff, he wanted to take it to the bare essential bones of what it would mean, what it would be like to actually be chased by people that are trying to kill you without any of that CGI. You're, all you're using is your knowledge of where you are, your skills that you've acquired through X amount of years, and your agility and your body you don't have like there are weapons but you don't own them you just it's you have to outsmart and I loved that about it. and of course the editing like it, again like I was just watching it and there wasn't a dull moment where I'm like okay this is boring I would just be like what's happening oh my god what's next <laughs> what's next and every single moment you were just it was just so well freaking executed I love the film I absolutely love it and there's so many themes there um of, you know, polarity, of rich, poor, of sadness, happiness, of, of unity, of, of 
sacrifice. What's the opposite of unity? Non-unity. Literal blood, sac- <laughs> literal blood sacrifice. <laughs> like blood sacrifice. It, just, <laughs> it, it was just such an outstanding film. And so... Also a very visceral film. Yes. Very, yeah. very visceral. And so there were uh, two, two scenes and one shot from a scene again. So the first thing that I loved was at the very beginning, the story of the old man when he's sitting with, you know, as the elder, um, he's sitting with, with the, the, the young, the old, the in between, whatever, male, female. And he talks about man and man's, um, just man not being capable of being content with the now and not being content with what he has always trying to seek more and more and more. And he tells a story of like, um, all of the animals in the forest, you know, the deer, the, the snake, the owl, giving of themselves to the man to provide the man to fill him, to make him happy. And the man finally getting all these like great little things from, from the animals walks off. And I think the deer goes, man, I'm really happy that we were able to help the guy. Like, I'm, I hope that he has a great life. And the owl, you know, in being the wise owl says, I'm scared now. I'm scared because there was a hole, a void in that man, and nothing was able to fill fill it until we were able, we, we relinquished everything of ourselves to provide for this man, and it still might not be enough, and I'm scared of that. And that was sort of the, the start of everything. And you kind of see this theme play out throughout the entire film where it's never enough, yeah. ravaging a, a village, killing other people, trying to, you know, be number one, doing, it's, it, I just, I loved that story and I thought it was just a good foreshadowing of what the rest of the film was going to be like. And it was just a simple scene. They're sitting around and it's just this old guy saying the story. And I was like, I almost wanted to cry. I was like, oh my God, you know? And so moving forward, the scene that I loved the most was to me, it's the middle of the film and this is where all of the action really freaking starts. After Jaguar Paw is on this pillar and he's about to get his heart opened up. There's an eclipse. And everybody from poor to rich, ugly to beautiful, to just uh, deserted, to diseased, to healthy, whatever, looks up at the sky and all is one. Everybody's one. Because they're like seeing this force that nobody can contend with. And the eclipse moves past. And this priest who's been kind of, you know, uh, in charge of this whole like, horrible, you know, sacrifice, um, you know, tells, you know, the, the, he tells the leader of the, uh, of the ravaging tribe, like, listen, take, take these prisoners and get them the hell out of here. And I don't care what you do with them. So Jaguar Paw goes with the remaining clique of his folks and they realize that they're about to be hunted, not hunted, but pretty much like they have to run. And if they're able to make it past like this, like, I don't know, I don't know how far it was from where they were to the cornfield. They have to make it to the cornfield. And if they make it to the cornfield, they're free. They're free to go. But there's a catch. As they're running, the team is going to be throwing arrows at them and other weapons. And if they get caught, they die. And if they don't, sayonara. So Jaguar Paw, he goes in and he starts running. And he's strategically running. He's not running in a straight line. He's, he's running going, in zigzags. The way you should it harder. run. Yeah. Somebody shooting arrows at you. Yes, making it harder to catch him. And they're kind of like, okay. And he's about to get into that cornfield. And he gets hit by that arrow. And it's like right on the side. 
and one of his friends ends up, you know, he's still alive from his attack. He ends up thwarting um, uh, this little boy. Like he's like 15 years old or whatever, like trying to become a man. And because he ends up tripping him, he saves Jaguar some time to grab this arrow that's in the side of him and eventually kill this 15 year old kid. And the group that's shooting the arrows is like, holy shit, like one of our own just got, you know, hit. What the hell is going on? And Jaguar Paul makes a run for it. And this is when the film just like picks up that pace. And you just see this man who's on a run for his absolute survival, not only for himself, but to get back to his wife and to his child. And that moment for me was just like to to experience what this guy experienced up until that moment, to see what he saw and to still have just this strength within him to just survive. And like from a mosquito to a cockroach to a human being, we fight to the very last moment to, to, to stay alive. And he just runs off and you realize in that moment, the power has now been shifted and it's no longer this group. It is this one single man who is going to fuck up all these other guys. And I loved that scene because I was like, I was just rooting for him because in that moment you understand like he's in a fight for his life and you don't know what's going to happen, what obstacles he's going to be facing, whether or not these guys are going to get him, how they're going to get him. It, it's just, it was just, I don't know. It was just great. That is it was great. That is great. Not the best explanation. I kind of sucked at no, it, but no, it's no. fine. It was very, it was very, <laughs> it was really insightful. Lena, I really appreciate having you on the podcast. <laughs> Honored that you are first guest on the film situation. Hope to, hope to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Bye, everybody. Until next time. You just listened to the Film Situation podcast with your host, Seth Cota. Today's guest was Lena Lansky, executive producer Jeff Cutler. Original music by Yuri Ryback.